Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 80 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 8th of July 2012, entitled The Glorious Church of Jesus Christ, Part 12. And the Bible reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. We're just going to begin by reading one verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. As you're turning there, of course, we are continuing in our series on contending for the faith. This is the 80th sermon in that particular series. We've been looking, this will be the 12th sermon that we've been looking at the glorious church of Jesus Christ. What a privilege that it is to be a part of his church. But we also live in days when many things and places are called churches that are far from a New Testament church. Uh, We have something that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us that has his authority, his power to do his work upon this earth. And so that's the things that we've been looking at. And as we've been looking through this idea of of the glorious church of Jesus Christ, uh, we began by defining just what a New Testament church is, both the prospective church that will be together at the rapture and the present church, the local church that we're a part of right now. Then we begin looking at the design of that New Testament church, the organization of it, of Christians being united together with with Jesus Christ as the head. It's not a society. It's not a club. It's not a, a business. It is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We look then at the officers of that church. The New Testament church has a specific order to its design. We saw that there are those that are called by God, the pastors, elders, bishops of that church, and those that are chosen by the church, those deacons to serve the needs of that that body. We also, as we looked at one of the sermons a bit ahead of time in the operation of the new church as we headed up to our missions conference, we we saw that God has given a specific design as to how his work is to be financed. And we looked at the the tithes and the free will offerings and the faith promise of financing God's work. Today we look at another aspect of the design of the New Testament church, and that is the ordinances of a New Testament church. We find our scripture reading taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's holy word as we read this this one verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. The apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Father, again, we ask for your blessing upon your word upon your message that comes forth this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. The ordinances of the New Testament church. Here is what we say in our statement of faith. That is what we have been united around as believers in this local body concerning the ordinances. It says two ordinances have been given to the local church, those being baptism and the Lord's Supper. These two ordinances are for believers only and to be administered by the local church. 
Baptism. We believe that the only scriptural baptism is by complete immersion in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The prerequisite to scriptural baptism is the new birth. There is no saving power in baptism, but is rather the first step of obedience of every Christian, identifying them with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Scriptural baptism must be administered by a local New Testament Bible-believing church. The Lord's Supper. We believe that the Lord's Supper consists of unleavened bread and unfermented fruit of the vine, and that they are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, broken and poured out on the cross for our sins. The prerequisites to scriptural observance of the Lord's Supper are the new birth and scriptural baptism. Those receiving the Lord's Supper should either be members of the local church where being administered, closed communion, or if the church desires to invite guests, those who are members of a church of like precious faith, closed communion. There is no scriptural grounds for the practice of open communion whereby anyone is invited to take of the elements. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only ordinances of the New Testament assemblies and are not for believers apart from the assemblies. Now that, if you would, puts in a nutshell what we as a church have tried to pin down to summarize what we believe to be the truths concerning the ordinances of the church. Now, that being said, how do we come to that conclusion? How do we come up with those things that we're able to, uh, to pin there and say that this is what we believe? Well, first of all, it might help to make sure that we understand what we mean by the word ordinance. What is an ordinance? Well, just like with most words, and especially when it comes to religious words and religious terms, you can find all kinds of different meanings out there. Just about anything that you want it to, uh, you can find something that uh, will make it lean that direction, depending upon where you look, depending upon who you talk to. Because, of course, different religions mean different things by the same word, as with so many. So many times we can talk to each other and we can share all these ideas and we think that somebody's talking about the same thing that we think, but it's not the same thing at all. Even among Christians, even amongst particularly different denominations within the Christian faith, this word ordinance can mean something totally different. Of course, What's interesting, as we begin to look into the Bible, there are words that can have slightly different meanings, can be used for different things. And even in the Bible, the word ordinance is used in a few different ways. As we begin to first find the word in the Old Testament, it can refer to the laws and the statutes of God and his holy things. It can also refer to the same things concerning men, even ungodly people, even the heathens. It can even refer to the laws of nature. So it has to do with some kind of set laws, guidelines, regulations. It could be dealing with God. It can be dealing with society. It can be dealing with, with the church. It can even be dealing with nature. 
as we look into the New Testament, of course, in some cases in the New Testament, it's referring back to those same things in the Old Testament and reminding us of those things. It also sometimes is translated traditions and can speak of traditions like the traditions that have been given to us by the apostles in the New Testament. And even in the New Testament, sometimes it speaks of civil and church-related regulations, ordinances. Sometimes we find that, you know, it's not an uncommon word even when we're speaking of ordinances that cities have and, and that civil authority has. But our use of the word, when we speak of a New Testament church having two ordinances, there is a particular meaning that we are using for this word, and it's one that has been used historically right down through for many, many times since the church began, and it continues to be used, yes, by Baptists, but also by other Bible-believing Christians out there to define something very specific in relation to the New Testament church. If I tried to define it for you as simply as I could in a nutshell, it might go something like this. An outward rite or ceremony that is instituted by divine authority and it's given for perpetual or continual, if you would, observance. It doesn't produce any favor with God. It is a sign or a symbol, a figure of the saving truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we speak of an ordinance, and we speak of these two ordinances of a New Testament church, that is precisely what we're talking about, that divine authority being Jesus Christ himself, that he has given his, remember, it is his church, his New Testament church, which is the seat of his authority in this age, He's given them these two rites, these two ceremonies, baptism and the Lord's Supper. He's given them as a symbol, as a picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are to continue to be observed until he returns and takes his church out of here. We need to be careful because there are some that... You may know and you, I'm sure, have heard it if you've been around other churches or other places very much. There's another word that's sometimes used to describe these ordinances as well as some other rituals that others believe in, and that's the word sacrament. Now, originally, the root of both of these words meant very much the same thing, very similar bases. They both speak of a ritual of a of a ceremony, but there is a very distinct and vitally important difference between the two. If you remember how we describe simply an ordinance, well, a simple definition for a sacrament would be something that is an outward or visible sign, a ritual, a ceremony, if you would, but has an inward or spiritual grace. 
In other words, it means that this rite or this ceremony that may be being referred to by both of these names, but in calling it a sacrament, we're believing that it confers some kind of grace or produces some kind of holiness within the person. Catholicism, for example, has seven sacraments and many other groups, including the Eastern Orthodox, even many of the Protestant churches, and even some of the Baptist churches that hold to a stronger Reformed Calvinistic theology will refer to the baptism of the Lord's Supper as sacraments. But in most of these cases, they usually believe that these ordinances are more than just symbolic ceremonies as we do. They're doing the same thing. They are practicing the same rite or the same ceremony, if you would. But they believe what that ceremony is doing is very, very different indeed. A lot could be said. But what I really want you simply to understand this morning, because folks, what we're trying to see here, we're trying to see the beauty and the glory of the New Testament church that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us and that we have the privilege of being part of and what God is doing through his church. But everybody that calls themselves a church isn't a church. And I believe as we are looking at these things concerning the church, that there are very important things within the word of God that specifically spells out what a New Testament church is. So as we look to try to understand what we speak of, because if it is a New Testament church, then it is designed with these two ordinances that we believe that Jesus Christ himself gave these two ceremonies to the New Testament church, that these two ordinances that we're looking at, baptism and the Lord's Supper, both symbolic of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why he came and it's why that we're still here, is that men and women and boys and girls might be taken out of their sin, given life everlasting, that these two ceremonies of the New Testament church, that they are to be observed until he returns for us. So the first of those we said is believer's baptism. Believer's baptism, symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I can promise you, as with many, that even though we have spent 80 sermons on this series, we could still be way back on one of the very first or second areas that we covered. And even on this area of baptism, we could spend weeks here looking at all that the Bible teaches us and the importance of those things but as we attempt to condense that down to something that is concise and, and easy to understand, look at an overview of this subject, if you would, as it relates to the glorious church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe a good place to start would be the same place that we begin with a new believer. When they come to know Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior, 
when they have put their faith and trust in him and his finished work, then it's our practice as a church to take them through a discipleship course, a personal discipleship course. And for some years, we've been using a study guide entitled Basic Bible Truths, published by Regular Baptist Press. The first four lessons in that discipleship program deal with salvation. First of all, we look at what it is that an individual is before they become a Christian. Then we look at what they are after that they become a Christian. And we look at what it is that has made that difference, that has taken them from what they were to what they are. And fourthly, we look at just how long that change is for. But the very fifth lesson in that book is one that covers the subject of baptism. Why is it the very next one in there following these lessons on salvation? Because as we have said, it is the first step of obedience. Just as we said in our statement of faith, the very first step of obedience that we're taught in Scripture that a believer is to take once he is saved. Must we be baptized to be saved? No. No, we could cut back and we could say many things, but certainly Jesus himself said to the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. But that thief did not have opportunity to be baptized. Must we be baptized in order to be saved? No, but I believe this. If you are saved, you should be baptized. And it's the only way that you can be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of the things that we have looked at through this study, many things are not essential to salvation. We looked right back very early on at what true saving faith was, what it meant to be scripturally saved and on your way to heaven. These things are not there for the purpose of our salvation. But though they not be essential to salvation, there are many things that God has not only directed but even commanded of us that we can only be obedient or disobedient. It won't put us into heaven or keep us out of heaven. But nonetheless, they're God's commands. We have difficulty with authority. We have difficulty many times with feeling that we have to do something. Well, I've got news for you. God's not going to take and bring out his whip and beat you to death because that you don't do what he says. But he does say, if, if you love me, he's the one that said, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. There should be a desire within us. It's hard, and we must all recognize that we are still in the flesh, and authority sometimes comes hard. We don't like being told what to do. We tell our children what to do, 
That doesn't make them our children. We command them, we give them the rules and the guidelines and the things to follow because we love them, because we care, because we want what's best for them. Our children can be disobedient. They don't quit being our child. There may be consequences to pay. There may certainly be blessings that they will miss. But the truth is, they're still our child. So don't be caught in the trap. There is so many today that would believe in baptismal regeneration, and we'll look at some of those things later. But I want you to grasp and understand fully as we're talking here that no, baptism is not essential to salvation. But every Christian, every believer should be baptized. And if they're not baptized, they are disobeying the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, of God himself. Now, as I said, maybe the first place for us to begin, which is what I want to give you this morning, is just to break down this is the basic overview of scriptural baptism that we try to teach to every young believer that comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. What about baptism? Christ gave the church two ordinances, water baptism and the Lord's table. An ordinance is a ceremony or rite appointed by Christ to be administered in the local church as a visible sign of the saving truth of the Christian faith. That's the first statement that we give them. That lines up with what we've already said. Now, what are we looking? Now, may I remind you that the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, do you think that it's coincidence that we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is the same chapter that we turn to when we begin reading from verse 23 every time that we come around the Lord's table, that being one of those ordinances, do you think it's coincidence that the Apostle Paul, in beginning that chapter, that he goes into such detail on that, said, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. He was commending the church we're keeping the ordinances. Now, he goes on and he very clearly lets them know that the way that they were keeping the Lord's table was not the way that it should be being kept. He rebukes them because the condition of their heart was wrong when they came to the table. But we find that there were ordinances delivered to the church The Apostle Paul here, one of those apostles, we looked at that, the office of the apostles and what they do, keep those ordinances that he had delivered to them. So there were ordinances given to the church that were to be kept. Baptism, as we look at that. Look with me in Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 12. Colossians chapter 2. And verse 12, what's the meaning of baptism? Bible says here, buried with him, Jesus Christ, in baptism. Wherein also ye are risen with who? 
with him, with Jesus Christ, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You see, in baptism, we are, first of all, we are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Baptism is not to save you, but it is to identify you with the one that has saved you. It shows this death, burial, and resurrection. Look back just a few pages in your Bible in the book of Romans, chapter 6. Notice what he says there in verses 3 through 5. He says, Know ye not that so many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. These are words that we even use every time that we take somebody through these waters of baptism, buried in the likeness of his death, risen in the likeness of his resurrection. Today we find that baptism is vital. Baptism is important. Don't take it to more than what it is, but realize that it is important for every Christian to identify themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and specifically with the gospel that he came to die for, the death, burial, and resurrection, the thing that we were identified with him in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That's what baptism is all about. We find that if we come to grasp and understand the meaning of baptism, what it means for an individual to be baptized, then the second thing that is important is that we understand the method of baptism. And people baptize in all kinds of different ways, don't they? You think all those people are evil, mean, nasty people that instead of baptizing by immersion, they, they just don't like to get as wet. They just want a little sprinkle or they want maybe somebody to pour a little bit of water over them. They don't want to get in there and get soaked. The simple truth is, is that many times when people come to see and to know Christ, you just heard this morning in the Bible study time for those that were here, how it's so easy to be deceived, to be tempted if we don't know the truth. Sometimes people are merely taught wrong. But folks, to be taught wrong doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it inexcusable. We have the Word of God. That's why to be a New Testament church, not only is there one meaning for baptism, and that is the identification of, of being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. 
And there's only one method of baptism that the Bible knows of. Look with me to Matthew chapter 3 and in verse 16. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, the Word of God says this. It says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. He didn't say he got a towel and dried the sprinkling off or that he got out from under the picture that had been poured over his head. I'm not trying to be nasty. Jesus Christ, the example that he says, he went into the river, folks, and that's where John baptized him, and he came up out of the water. If you look just a bit further over in the Gospel of Acts, chapter 8, a familiar passage, an account that is often read during baptisms. Down in verse 38 of chapter 8, of course, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch says, and he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So the Bible gives us a very clear picture that when Jesus came up out of the water, and just as surely they hear Philip and the eunuch are going down into the water, we find that the Bible also tells us in other places that there was much water there. We find that also the word itself, baptize, is not even an English word. It's a transliterated word because this thing that was being recorded for us, this picture that was being given to us, of Jesus going into the river, of Jesus coming straightway up out of the water, of Philip and the eunuch going down into the water and being baptized. It was a word, but we didn't really have an English word that sufficiently described it. We've come to try to use other words to describe it. But the word baptize was transliterated from the Greek into our English Bibles, and it literally meant to dip, to plunge, to submerge, to immerse in water. And so the word itself, what they were doing itself, gave a very vivid picture. The word baptize itself meant that they dipped them, immersed them, put them under the water, and then brought them back out. So we find that I'm simply saying to you folks that the ordinance of baptism, which is one of the two ordinances of the New Testament church, that there is only one method found in Scripture. And I would challenge you, whatever man's intentions, whatever that they may have come up with these other ideas, that it would work just as well. Simple truth is it's not biblical. It's not the design of the New Testament church that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. There is only one meaning for baptism. There is only one method of baptism. What's the motive? Okay, I don't have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. I don't have to be baptized 
in order to be saved. Why should I be baptized? Well, I guess one very simple place that we've looked often is in Matthew chapter 28, the very commission that is given to the church. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20 says, And Jesus came and spake unto them. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's parting words, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That is a definite command that is given to the apostles, the foundation of the New Testament church where Jesus Christ has left his authority on this earth. It is the church's responsibility to go into the world, to take the gospel to them, Brother Steve, and then those that have been saved to see that they are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and then to take those saved, baptized people and to teach them all things concerning the Word of God, to observe all the things whatsoever I have commanded you. There are many commands in Scripture, but they tend to get under our skin. I said a while ago in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus is the one that said, okay, you're not having to do this to go to heaven. You're not having to do this to be saved, but if you love me, keep my commandments. We want to say, I love you, Lord. We want to say those words. But he said, if you do, prove it with your action. If you love me, keep my commandments. We find that, I guess we we try to use that same kind of thing on on our children a lot of times when we're trying to teach them and we're trying to train them when they're growing up. And they've been disobedient, and you said, do this. They said, do that. And, and you know, sometimes you just, you know, you, you're, you're ready to pull your hair out. You might say, well, if, if you care anything about me at all, why don't you just listen to me and do what I say? Jesus is saying to us, okay, if you really care about me, if you love me, then keep my commandments that I've given to you. They'll do something else for you, too. We read there in Acts chapter 8. Just a few moments ago when they went down into the water for Philip to baptize the Ethiopian eunuch, notice what the next verse says there in verse 37. It says, and Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The verse we read earlier, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Notice verse 39. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, 
and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. We sing it. The author knew exactly what he was talking about when he wrote that great old hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You see, the eunuch, why was he so happy? Why was he so joyful? Folks, when we're obedient to the Lord, it's going to bring joy to our lives. I don't know about you. I can remember when I was disobedient to my dad, my earthly dad, joy is about the last way that I would describe what it brought to me when I disobeyed him and he had to correct me. Matter of fact, when I knew that I had disobeyed, before he ever said a word, before he maybe even ever found out about it, boy, the heart was thumping a bit harder. I knew, oh boy, I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> I knew that I was being disobedient, and it wasn't joy that it brought. But at the same time, in a smaller way than the spiritual realm we're talking about here with Christ. But there was an inner peace and joy. When you'd been told to do something, and even though you might have been tempted not to do it or to do it a different way, in the end, you did it because that's what you were supposed to do. And there was a certain inward joy that comes from that. That's nothing compared when it's our Heavenly Father. When we're being obedient to Him, it brings joy. And that's the only way we're going to be happy. So I'm saying to you that the only meaning of baptism is not for baptismal regeneration to be saved, but to identify ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a symbol. It is a picture of what has taken place. The only method, the only way that will show that is to be buried with him in that water and to be raised again in newness of life. The only method that the Bible teaches us anywhere is baptism by immersion. Well, preacher, aren't you being too hard on those that maybe sprinkle or pour or dip or, or do something else? That's between them and God. I'm saying that's not the New Testament design. That's not the way Jesus designed it. So we can't really call ourselves a New Testament church if we've taken our own design. And we're calling ourselves a church, but we're doing it our way. There's only one method in Scripture. The motive to do it, because he commanded it. He commanded that we be baptized. And if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. And that's the only way that we're going to know true joy and peace and happiness. And that's why, that to be a member of our church, to be a member of most churches that would align themselves with a statement of faith such as ours, before you can be a member, you must not only be saved, but you must be baptized. That's why even back when we looked at that defining of a New Testament church and what a New Testament church was, and we looked at initially that design of those believers coming together, united believers of born-again 
baptized believers. You see, today, I want to give you this in closing. Believing and being saved come first. And then the very next step is to be immersed in water baptism, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We sang that song earlier, follow, follow. I will follow Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're following him again. Right here in in Acts chapter 8 that we just read, in verse 37, when asked the question, you see, notice that then Philip opened his mouth, verse 35, and began at the same scriptures and preached unto him what? Jesus. He was telling him he had to be baptized. He was preaching Jesus to him. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, if it was just baptism that was essential for his salvation, for him to be right with God, all they would have to do was stop the chariot and go down into the water and baptize him, and that religious rite would have been carried forth. That's not what the Bible says. Verse 37, and Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What hinders me? He obviously knew enough to know that this baptism thing was something that identified him as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. What hinders me? He'd been taught about Jesus. Okay, well, this water, this baptism thing is what identifies what hinders me from being baptized. Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, then thou mayest. You see, salvation is the first and most important thing. And then following that, baptism identifies us with him, pictures what has taken place in our lives. Look just a few pages over in Acts chapter 16 and in verse 14. And a certain woman named... Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. What did she do? This woman, this seller of purple, she was there before she was ever baptized. The Bible uses the term whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. You see, fact was, she was being preached to, and she attended to those things. She listened to those things. She acted upon those things, and then she was baptized And apparently her whole household had become believers as well. 
Notice over in verse 33 of that same chapter. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. Who's the Bible talking about here? The Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer, that was when he was baptized. Well, you got to back up a few verses to see what happened before. Verse 30 says, and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he in all his straight way. What must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He did believe, and then the very next thing that happened to him is that he was baptized. He believed first, and then he was baptized. And one of the passage in Acts chapter 18 and in verse 8, and Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, what's the next word in your Bible? Believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing, believed and were baptized. Folks, there is a must of baptism. Baptism is not an option. Baptism doesn't save us. When we are baptized, we are identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. There's no other way that he has given us to make that identification. There is only one way that that can be pictured in this ritual, and that's to be immersed into water, which is the only way that we find any description of baptism in the Word of God, and it's what the Word itself tells us. Why should we do it? In obedience to the Lord's command. In obedience to the Lord's command. He's commanded it. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you've been saved, don't be ashamed to identify yourself with Jesus Christ and say to the whole world, I died with him in his death and I was risen with him in his resurrection. It'll bring personal joy that you'll never know if you're disobedient. This is what God's word says. If you say, oh, I don't have to have that. Well, folks, I'm, I'm not condemning you. I'm just saying you can only do that one way. And that's to say God's command doesn't matter to you. You can't say you don't know. We have looked at it in God's word. He's the one that commanded it. He's the one that commanded the local church to do it. You can either obey or disobey. If you love him, keep his commandment. Know the joy that comes in being obedient to him. But baptism will do nothing for you, as important as it is, so important that we're saying it's a bit pointless to become a member of this congregation if you're not even willing to identify yourself with Jesus Christ in that first step of obedience. But folks, you've got to believe first. That's my closing question to you here this morning. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart? I don't care how you might have gotten wet. 
Maybe you were more biblical than some. Maybe you weren't sprinkled or poured. Maybe you were immersed. Maybe you were baptized as an infant. We'll look at some more of that later, but I say show me one baby in the Bible that was ever baptized anywhere. Show me anybody that was ever baptized that wasn't first saved. The truth is today is baptism did not save you. It did not make you a Christian. It might have made you part of a church, but not a New Testament church, not the glorious church of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the way he designed it. And if man wants to design it that way, and man wants to call it a church, and man wants to call it baptism, that's man. That's not what God says. Today, don't disobey God. If you're a child of God, you need to be baptized. But if you've been baptized, don't take false hope. Number one, if somebody else has baptized you and given you false hope, they want a New Testament church. And it's done absolutely nothing for you. You need to know that. I don't care what pride you got to swallow. I don't care what you have to face up to. There's nothing you've got to swallow. There's nothing you've got to face that's not worth doing it rather than to walk out those doors not ready to meet God. Why take that risk? You don't know. I'm not trying to say this to scare you. I'm just being honest. You're a fool if you think you've got tomorrow or next week or next month or next year to sort this thing out. If you don't know that you've humbled yourself, that you believe. When God said all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, when God said the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When the Bible says God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, praise God. When he says, if you, you see, if you'll believe him, if you'll recognize that, God's not asking you to even clean up your own act. He's just asking you to recognize the sin and to recognize that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. To recognize that it's Jesus Christ and you. I say this because I love you. But you know what? My love doesn't even begin to compare to his love for you. Just accept him at his word. Humble yourself and say, yes, God, I do believe you. I understand. I see my sinfulness. I know that I'm a sinner. And it's sure kind of a foolish thing to believe that some water with or without the chlorine is going to clean it away. The blood's the only thing that will clean it. The only New Testament baptism follows your believing. Today, have you believed? Have you accepted God's word? Have you humbled yourself and asked forgiveness because in your heart you believe him? You believe what he said. You believe in what Jesus Christ did for you. Nothing else, all your intentions, nothing else will change that. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. We're going to sing in just a moment softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Is Jesus calling you this morning? You see, we're talking about not just a church, but the glorious church of Jesus Christ. 
We're talking about you knowing that one day that you'll be a part of that glorious church, the one true church that will be assembled together with him in the air. When he comes to call us out of here, the only ones that are going to hear that call are those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. It doesn't matter if you're on a church roll down here. It doesn't matter where you belong down here. It matters whether it's written up there. We're talking about this simple matter called baptism that is designed as part of this New Testament church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you here this morning? You may or may not have been baptized in whatever method or mode that might have been. But you slip your hand up right now and say, Preacher, I'm, I, I may have had the best of intentions. My parents may have had the best of intentions. A lot of people may have meant only good by it. But if I'm honest, today, I don't know with certainty that I've genuinely dealt with my sin, that I've humbled myself, admitted my sin, asked for forgiveness because of what Jesus Christ did. I don't know that with a certainty. Would you please pray for me? Would you slip your hand up? Anyone? You don't know that? Don't be too proud. Don't be too proud. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you have. You know in your heart that you've genuinely called upon Christ to save you. Maybe because of being mistaught. Maybe because of not understanding. Maybe with all good reasons. But you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism. Maybe you need to slip your hand up this morning and say, Preacher, pray for me. I, I, I know in my heart that I've believed. But I've not identified myself through New Testament Bible believers, baptism, since I accepted Christ as my Savior. Would you pray for me? Because I need to follow the Lord's command in that in my life. Are you here this morning? You slip your hand up. Say, preacher, pray for me. God bless you. I see that. You can put your hand down. Anyone else? You know that you're a Christian, but you've been disobedient. Maybe you've been baptized the wrong way. And maybe man told you that was okay. But in God's word, you can see that there's only one way to truly be baptized. And it'd be biblical baptism. Would you slip your hand up and say, preacher, pray for me. I've been baptized, but it wasn't the right way. And I'd really appreciate your prayers. Anyone? Anywhere? God, we thank you this morning. You've not only seen the hands, but, Lord, you've seen the hearts. We're going to sing this song now as we come to the end of this time together this morning. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't have that certainty, Lord, they don't need me to convince them. But as the Holy Spirit speaks to their heart, I pray that they would listen, that they would act upon that, and that even this day that they would come forth and pray that prayer that they must pray for themselves. Lord, I pray that whatever else that you might be doing and dealing with in people's hearts, Lord, we thank you that, or for these that have been saved and know that they've truly trusted Christ, but yet they've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism. 
Lord, I pray that you would just give them a peace in the heart of understanding, hey, this is what I need to do. This is what the Lord wants of me. I do love him. I do want to follow his commandments. And I pray, Lord, that you'd just work in their hearts and help them to know, Lord, that by being obedient to him and his command, it's not what man wants. It's not what we as a church wants. It's what you want for them. I pray that you'd help them to be able to make that choice and that decision in their life. We'll give you all the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.